0: Hello and welcome to CIO Perspectives. I'm Sid All, the CIO for Private Client, Endowments, and Foundations here at Brown Advisory, and I'm joined again by my co-host Erica Pagel, our CIO of Sustainable Investing, and our special guest today is Mike Poggi, the portfolio manager of our large-cap sustainable value strategy and an experienced analyst in the industrials, materials, and energy sectors over his 20 years with the firm. The past several years have brought about massive disruption, And each of the past three years, we've written our investment outlook, only to have the world upended by a major event. Three years ago, it was COVID. Last year, it was the war in Ukraine. And this year, we released our outlook just before the banking crisis that took down Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse. The good news is that the recent crisis, which we'll dive into in greater detail, hasn't changed our overall outlook much. It's mostly added to our conviction that today's market presents a wide range of potential outcomes and warrants some conservatism. There will be winners and losers in the banking sector, but overall, we expect fewer loans, higher credit standards, and a dampening effect on growth. We're also not sure we've heard the last of the banks and their struggles, as souring commercial real estate loan exposure may be the next issue some of them face, in addition to the outflow of deposits that we've been seeing. Inflation may come down faster as a result of this, but many components like wages and housing remain stubbornly high. Stock market valuations have risen this year to 19 times forward earnings, and they remain less attractive relative to the yields we're seeing in the bond markets. So we're being compensated well to be a bit defensive. If I'd known this year that we'd have a banking crisis affecting two of the largest banks in the U.S. and Europe, that central banks would still be hiking rates despite that, and that leading economic indicators would be pointing to a recession in the U.S. and Europe, I would likely not have predicted the stock markets would be up 6 to 8% globally. This is yet another reminder that timing markets is nearly impossible, and what is important is time in the market, the compounding effect of being invested in high-quality companies over time. We'll allow ourselves to shift portfolios based on the values we're seeing in different securities and markets, but we resist the urge to go to cash or deviate too far from the long-term plan. This particular environment is also a great reminder that we invest in a market of stocks, not just the stock market and we continue to find plenty of companies trading at attractive valuations, despite this shifting top-down view. The strength in the stock markets this year suggests that investors are more concerned with the level of interest rates than with the fundamental strength of the economy and earnings. With projected weakness in the economy comes the hope of cooling inflation and more dovish central banks, and that's driven stock market multiples higher, particularly, once again, the largest growth stocks in the world. Google, Microsoft, and Apple are all up 15 to 30% this year and Meta and NVIDIA are up 75 to 100%. It feels like a flashback to 2021. Rates are falling, PE multiples are rising, but interest rates aren't the only driver. Many tech companies are benefiting from self-help in the form of cost-cutting to drive improving bottom lines, as well as excitement over the developments in artificial intelligence. An early look at the Q1 earnings season suggests both of these forces are having a positive impact, and the pace of AI development seems only to have increased since we last spoke sparking both new excitement and growing concern over the risks for controls of these AI systems. So today we're excited to dive into three current market drivers, the ongoing tremors in the banking sector, the advancements in AI and what's going on in tech, and the continued impact of COVID in determining the winners and losers in investment portfolios. But first, as we typically do, I'll start off, Erica, with you. Why don't you tell us your take on what's going on in the current market environment, Why do you think the market's rebounded so strongly in the face of all these headwinds, and what are you doing as a result?
1: Thanks, Ed. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. I can highlight a few areas that are on our minds about the current market environment. There's a lot of reasons to point to a late cycle environment. We're starting to see some headwinds recede, but inflation continues to be the primary focus. This seems to be an environment where there is higher potential for idiosyncratic risk, There's greater probability today that the drag from higher rates and the banking situation could lead us into an economic downturn. The depth and breadth of a downturn remains to be seen, and markets are reacting to interest rates, and sector performance depends on rate sensitivity. So there's a lot of things that are slowing. We're seeing weaker corporate earnings, tightening credit conditions, which you mentioned, deceleration in leading economic indicators, and there's a continued inversion of Treasury yields. The good news is we're starting to see some headwinds recede, like inflation. The most recent print showed that we're slowing, but gradually it was great to see that we're finally seeing some softening in shelter inflation. And Fed policy has been a headwind, and it's very anticipated by the market that we'll probably have another rate hike in May, and then, you know, maybe another hike after that, but the Fed may pause at some point this year. So why is the market rebounded in the face of a tightening Fed? On the surface, as you mentioned, the S&P 500 was up 7.5% in the first quarter, but seven of the largest tech companies accounted for more than 80% of that return. And again, roughly a third of the S&P 500 companies outperformed the index in the first quarter. Big tech has been seen as a safe haven, and I know we'll talk with Mike about this in a few minutes. You know, investors have really recalculated the potential value of growth companies in a future low-rate environment. But there's still a lot of unknowns about what scenario plays out over the next 6 to 12 months. And in many ways, we're at this intersection of earnings growth and the Fed cycle. So what are we doing in portfolios? You talked a little bit about this. We're focused on rebalancing here, given the equity markets move. We're getting closer to target weights in our operating buckets, focused on cash and core fixed income. But we're still remaining defensive. We're underweight credit. We still have an allocation to treasuries. And we're mindful of not taking a lot of additional risk in the face of the debt ceiling, as well as potentially liquidity issues later this year. It's a good time to have a little bit of dry powder.
0: Yeah, it's kind of remarkable if you think about some of those trends. I mean, it will have to be a very different cycle if we don't have a recession when you look at things like how inverted the yield curve is and how negative year over year some of these leading economic indicators are there hasn't been an example of having these indicators flashing red as they are today and not having a recession But we've had a pretty unique economic cycle with COVID, the reopening, all of the excess savings that people had coming out of COVID and some of these big tech companies and their potential for kind of self-help. So it's really interesting. Mike, what is your take on why a 5% increase in rates and all of these other headwinds haven't dissuaded equity investors as much as we might've expected?
2: Yeah, sure. First and foremost, thank you both for having me on. I'm really excited to be here and speak with you both today. You know, I think you've hit on a lot of the main topics. I mean, I I think all the signs are there in terms of inverted yield curve and slowing corporate earnings, but it just hasn't really sort of shown up in mass yet. And I still think there's a bit of the mentality amongst investors of that buy the dip that has sort of worked for the last 10 plus years. I think last year sort of shook out some very speculative parts of the market, but in the large cap sector and the S&P overall, I think there is still that fear of missing out and the fact that when we've seen small drawdowns before, it's paid to buy them, uh, and the market has just continued to go up over time. Now, I think to this point, again, you know, numbers overall have been slightly better than expected. I think up until least the recent events within the banking sector. You know, earnings have been, for the most part, okay. And I think part of that is management teams have done a good job in terms of giving guidance. You know, you alluded to the rise in rates and that is flowing through the market currently, but is not all showing up at this point, at least the severity of it. We're seeing in parts of housing, we're seeing in parts of commercial real estate, we're starting to see companies lower guidance on higher interest expense, but it's not having the severity of an impact that maybe we're seeing this point, but it is continuing to flow through. And again, if things continue to be slightly better than expected going forward, it just means we'll be living in a higher cost of capital environment on a go forward basis. I think it's also interesting to sort of point out that while well, yes, overall the market is up mid-single digit year to date. You talked about the dominance of a few companies overall that are driving that. If you look at just in the first quarter in the value space and the Russell 1000 value, the market was up a percent, but the spread between the best performing sector and the worst performing sector, the best being communication services. And the worst being financials was just over 25%, which in the large cap space in a three month period, that is a very widespread. So there are some rumblings going on underneath the surface. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned the kind of
0: by the dip mentality. You know, we've been talking for so long about this being perhaps a different cycle, right? We've become so accustomed to weakness being responded to by the Fed with lowering interest rates and obviously quantitative easing and other more extreme measures. Some people seem to have taken some of the actions in the banking sector, the lending facility to help banks as they're seeing deposit outflows as a sign of more of what we've seen in the past, You know, an easing of financial conditions, injecting liquidity into the system. I do wonder how much of that is being factored in by people when they're thinking about investing in this market. But I think your points about the dispersion underneath the surface are really interesting ones. But I know we wanted to hit on three big topics today, the first of which is banking I know this is a sector that you look at closely, certainly all value investors look at closely. What do you make of the SVB situation? And we've got a newer situation, what's going on in First Republic, but how does this impact your outlook for banks, but also some of the more cyclical companies with exposure to those other areas you noted?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly the topic du jour the last couple of weeks, and while things seem to have calmed down a little bit, they are still very much a fluid situation given the dynamics that are going on it is still sort of a moving target, if you will, but I would say, you know, thus far, the winners are obviously the biggest banks. It's sort of ironic that over the last 10 plus years since the GFC, the global systematically important banks, the GSIBs have been somewhat penalized by investors because the increased regulation, et cetera. But, you know, in today's world, when there's a concern over the safety of deposits and capital levels at regional and small banks, the flight tends to be to the big banks because depositors then they know they're heavily regulated and backstopped, and they've been the winners thus far. It's unique also in the fact that we think about historical banking crises. Those have usually been credit-driven events. Here has really been a crisis of liquidity and concerns around the securities in the books of banks' balance sheets, which is not something we've really dealt with in the past. You know, I think thankfully to this point, the market seems to be moving away from deposit flows after we've seen sort of first quarter results for the majority of the banking sector, large and small. I think deposit flows were better than expected. And really the focus now is on well, the cost of funding, or what you know, these banks are paying the depositors. You know, you alluded to commercial real estate. That's a big point of concern in terms of commercial real estate exposure on balance sheets. And then the longer duration concern is the potential, or really the likelihood, of increased regulation for the banks going forward. Again, really the regional and small bank level. I would also mention that again from a duration perspective i think the ongoing concern is still from a credit standpoint just because credit has been so pristine over the last two years we haven't seen it show up in banks i think the last couple of quarters we've been waiting to see it but credit has been very good but that is given the pace and size of rate increases we've seen it's hard to imagine we're not going to start to see cracks in that going forward it's interesting you bring up the big banks have been much better prepared
0: for this and there's always a lot of kicking and screaming when new regulations come out but after 2008 really regulators separated banks into multiple tiers, but the capital requirements, the oversight, the stress tests was limited in its most intense form to really just the top few banks. And so you had a very different approach to risk at those banks. And you see that today, the deposits are flowing out of those banks that had less oversight into those that had more. So it is really interesting that we've seen some material winners
2: here. I'd love to sort of turn the question back to you all. What are you all seeing from external managers that you're interviewing and dealing with? And in general, just what are you seeing out there in the market within the banking sector?
0: I could start, I think, you know, some of it is not just external managers. The first thing I think about is actually on the client side is that, you know, we've had this mass awakening after a decade of getting paid nothing on your savings account, people have realized that they can go out and buy a money market fund and make a nearly 5% return. And most of the banks have been stuck paying literally zero, trying to get as much spread as they can off of deposits, paying nothing to depositors and then going and investing themselves and keeping that spread. So that's not been a problem for our clients because we're investing that cash in money market funds and we work with custodians that will try to sweep into something that does offer a yield but there's just a lot of focus on what that will do to the financials, the earnings of these banks and the ones that are maybe stuck with other issues like deposit outflows and commercial real estate exposure, what that could mean to them in terms of raising new capital, or even in some cases as a going concern. That's clearly the debate right now on our First Republic. The commercial real estate side of things for sure is a big focus. And you know we've seen just recently, you know, Brookfield, Blackstone, Veritas, other property owners in the news for defaulting on big loans in LA and DC and San Francisco. You know, There was a, an article in the journal today about one of these properties selling for 20, 30 cents on the dollar given really high vacancy rates. So, I mean, particularly in the US, this seems to be a big issue and the smaller banks, you know, I don't need to tell you, Mike, have more exposure to these commercial real estate loans, something like 25% of assets. That's a bit of an anchor that'll weigh on them. So Yeah, I think what we're hearing most about from the external managers is where people have exposure to these areas directly and trying to reduce that, but also where there are companies that get credit from these smaller institutions. That's a big concern. I would say we're not hearing a lot of concern, and I don't think we have a lot of concern that this is a 2008-like crisis. It's not. We don't have the same levels of leverage. We don't have the same issues with credit quality. We certainly have a very different mortgage market today with much more home equity than we did back then. But curious, Erica, your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, so far it seems to be contained or idiosyncratic rather than systemic. But, you know, we're watching the small and regional banks closely, particularly this earnings season. And then how does the banking situation relate to the macro and Fed? You know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about the Fed's path to target inflation. That old adage is that the Fed will hike until something breaks, and you could interpret this banking situation really as that breaking point. So the Fed's willingness to tighten policy from here, it could have narrowed given these recent developments. And Sid, you touched on First Republic and just a little bit of renewed focus on deposit outflows and loan portfolios. The biggest thing that we're focused on right now is, Mike, what you mentioned is commercial real estate and office space. Sid, You talked a little bit about that we're starting to see the impact of the lack of office workers and low occupancy and office real estate. We're starting to see some of those sales of these spaces at a significant decline in value. There's reports that there's roughly $80 in loans backed by U.S. office buildings that comes due this year that will need to be refinanced, and we have higher interest rates today. So that stress within the banking sector is really leading to tightening lending standards and possible liquidity risk. So maybe, Mike, I'll bring this back to you. How do these struggles in the market impact not only the banking sector, but other sectors that you follow and invest in, such as industrials?
2: Yeah, I think the immediate concern is certainly more on the banking side before we get into the industrial space. Sid, I saw that note in the journal this morning too about the building in California, it's for 20 cents on the dollar, and it's certainly not the headline that anybody in the office market was looking to see today. But you know, like anything else, you can't paint an entire space with a broad brush. You hear stories like that today, but then you also hear stories of new buildings coming online in Manhattan and breaking sort of new state-of-the-art buildings that are LEED-certified trophy office space that are seeing rents 30-40% to 40% above what they were pre-pandemic. So there is a bit of a divergence, but clearly the low end of the market is weighing on things. There's just a ton of sublease space available as well. CBRE put out a, a report just this week that the amount of sublease space in the market today is double what it was at the beginning of January of 2020. So there is a lot of supply to be absorbed and there. Clearly, we're going to have more headlines like the ones we had today. So as it relates to the banks, the initial screens everybody was running when Silicon Valley went down was sort of screening banks on percentage of uninsured deposits. And I feel like the topic of the day is running screens on CRE exposure. You know, I think like anything else, not all banks are created equally. It's been interesting to see this earnings season. A lot of banks are trying to get ahead of these things. We've seen banks actually add slides to their quarterly earnings decks and slides that are dedicated to not only their deposit base and some you know more granularity on that, but breaking down their Commercial real estate exposure by vertical, by geography, their loan to value, and their maturity schedules. I think a lot of banks are being really straightforward and trying to give investors more information in terms of what their exposures look like, what their deposit base looks like, because they're trying to separate themselves from the Silicon Valleys and signatures of the world. I think it's one of the reasons why we really like Bank of America. It's one of the largest holdings that are within financials for us. The two big concerns on deposit quality and commercial real estate. B of A's scale and diversity of business lines is a real asset in this market. I mean, they have $1.9 trillion of deposits. You know, they're not only well diversified across consumer, small, medium business, commercial, and their wealth management business, but you know, over two thirds of the relationships within each of those segments have been in existence for over a decade. You know, this is a sticky of a, of a deposit base that's you know, it's out there and it's really sort of shown in the last couple of weeks and quarters. You know, and it's that sticky deposit base coupled with their leading digital platform that makes it really a significant asset for the bank and the franchise. As it relates to commercial real estate, again, given the size of Bank of America's balance sheet, all of commercial real estate is only seven percent of the loans in their loan book and offices is only twenty five percent of that. So only a percent and a half of the total loan book. That's a much different profile than we see on the small and medium size. So again In this environment, we think the big continue to win here, just given the size and scale and the diversity of the business lines.
0: Anything that surprised you to the positive or the negative as you've seen more of this disclosure from banks this quarter?
2: Yeah, I think a couple things. I think on the deposit bases, some of the names that actually screened some of the smaller banks that got caught up in that initial rush when people were looking for second derivatives of percentage of uninsured deposits. I think a lot of these banks have done a great job talking through earnings of more granularity in the deposit base. Maybe there's some things within the uninsured bucket that are either municipal deposits or what have you that, again, tend to be more sticky. There's less deposit flight there, and the headline number through a screen is not exactly what it is underlying. And given a lot of historical. Figures around duration of relationships, number of other relationships or products sold these customers as well, and I think that's helped to calm down the market, if you will. Just because I think a lot of people were relying on any of those screens or charts in the Wall Street Journal, et cetera. But I think the deposit quality of a lot of these smaller regional banks is actually I think, surprised to the upside. It's interesting. Maybe outside of the banking sector, you know, there's some
0: obvious areas, whether it's housing stocks or it could be industrial companies that are linked to housing starts or to office? Are there other areas that you've been particularly focused on, either as areas to avoid or areas where the market's overreacted already and could be interesting to take a look at?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly all things construction are tied to rates and have certainly been on our mind in the value space. I mean, the overall building product space is a large part of industrials and certainly within the value side as well. And it's been interesting. You know, we certainly saw the brunt of it in the back half of last year on the initial spike in interest in interest rates and in mortgages. And just I think the sticker shock of eighteen months ago, two years ago, people saw sub three percent mortgage rates and then all of a sudden you're seeing seven handles. And I think the sticker shock of that certainly slowed things down. The market is still down definitely, but it has been interesting to see there is still the pent up underlying demand under the surface. And I think the structural supply issue that we were dealing with before this in terms of being underbuilt within homes over the last 15 plus years, that still needs to be resolved. And it's interesting that this is happening at a time when millennials are sort of getting into peak home buying age. And so there is a lot of pent up demand under the surface on the housing side. I think it'll still be choppy, but it's interesting from the peak of seven and you start to see six and a half, six, mortgage rates, you're starting to see the demand pick up and houses are certainly starting to move. I think as it relates to non-res, I've certainly been surprised at the strength and the duration of this cycle. You know, Names within HVAC or commercial HVAC, other building products areas, it has been very strong. And I think there's a couple uh, factors at play. One, just coming out of COVID, we sort of had pent up demand, big backlogs that people are working through. Two, I think it sort of lost some people that we had a bit of an industrial recession from 2016 to 2018. And, you know, as we, while backlogs are being worked off now, we are staring at some pretty big federal stimulus in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chipset Act, et cetera, which is going to require a lot of industrial demand, a lot of construction and a lot of demand for these products. And thus far, while there's been concerns on that cycle, thus far through earnings, we're not seeing those cracks yet. Interesting. You talked about the residential side. I did find it
0: fascinating. An unexpected headline hit my desk recently, noting that a greater percentage of Gen Z owned homes at the age of 25 than Gen Xers or millennials. So this discussion of the younger generations being less interested in home ownership seems to thus far be being debunked. Maybe it's time to switch gears to technology and tech is back this year in a big way. We've seen a big rebound and in some ways it's turned into kind of a safe haven a little bit as it did during COVID. What do you make of the rally
2: we've seen in tech this year in the face of a potential recession? It's been interesting. I mean, it's in the face of a potential recession in the midst of a quote unquote banking crisis, the traditional flight to safety was, you know, you buy consumer staples, you buy healthcare, you buy utilities. And ironically, despite everything, all the concerns out there, those three sectors actually underperformed the market, at least in the value space, in the first quarter. So the new flight to safety is by technology and communication services, which even in the value space tend to be the more expensive parts of the market. So it's been interesting to see. I understand that, obviously, a lot of those names have great balance sheets. When there's a banking crisis, it's one thing that investors tend to focus on. But it has been interesting to see the expensive parts of the market get more expensive as capital has flowed out of some of the cheaper parts of the market overall.
1: Mike, it's strange for us to talk about technology when you're a value investor, but the reality is that a lot of these bellwether tech names have matured now to a point that they actually walk the line between both value and growth. How do you think about tech as a value investor?
2: Yeah, we think about it a lot. I mean, you know, we think about value as we're buyers of free cash flow streams or free cash flow focused. And so naturally there's a lot of intriguing aspects of the business models and technology that are appealing to us as it relates to free cash flow. I mean, a lot of these models tend to be capital light. They have really high free cash flow conversion. And we think about free cash flow conversion as a percentage of EBITDA. And it's a sector that for the most part, you know, historically has really avoided a lot of leverage. So, you know, those are three real positive aspects that fit our philosophy. You know, on the negative side, because of how ingrained tech is in our lives and really how well the sector has done the last 10, 15 years, it's also an area that is constantly attracting competition, you know, especially in a low cost of caliber world or free money world. When you have competition that's getting funded without a concern for profit, but sort of a market share at all cost dynamic, that gives us some concerns. I mean, it does bring into question the pricing power of underlying businesses and the sustainability of the cash flows on a go forward basis when there's that constant competitions. I think tech overall is one of the more expensive areas of the market. It's done well. A lot of these businesses generate good cash flow, especially on the large cap side. For the most part, the free cash flow yields remain fairly low. I think it's interesting after last year's tech drawdown, many names within the large cap tech space that had previously been growth names have migrated into the value indices. Names like Meta, Netflix, and Salesforce are actually really big weightings in the value index, which is something I think a lot of people may not realize case in point with the Russell 1000 value was up 1% in the first quarter, You know, Meta was almost a 90 basis point contributor to the performance of the entire index or 90% of total return. I mean, Meta was up 76% in the first three months of the year, which is pretty staggering. Not a name you would associate necessarily within the value index, but it is in there currently. You know, where we stand, we currently have about 10% of the portfolio in technology. So certainly a different dynamic than you would see in a growth strategy. You know, we tend to focus more on you know, a little bit more on the hardware space or in the semi-cap equipment side, you know, areas where you think where end markets have somewhat consolidated and there's just less competition on a go-forward basis and a much higher free cash flow stream, if you will.
0: Maybe that's a good transition talking about tech hardware. I mean, you can't talk about tech these days without talking about AI. Talked a lot about it on our last podcast, but so much has changed in so little time here. We talked before the podcast about the AI segment on 60 Minutes with the team from Google and we've seen some incredible returns in companies like NVIDIA that are considered winners in terms of chip design for some of the AI systems. What is your perspective on what's going on in this kind of AI gold rush?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And it's certainly something that it was hadn't really focused on, you know, before, but it's certainly gotten most of the attention of the market, certainly in the last couple of weeks. I did see the sixty minute segment. I would say it was sort of, you know, both exciting and terrifying at the same time. As it relates to our portfolio, we do own Google in that portfolio, not necessarily because of its AI capability, something we're focusing on, you know, more on a go for basis, but Google's one of those names that again in that we're talking about that flight to safety dynamic. When I started at Brown Advisor 20 years ago, one of the first sectors I covered was consumer staples, so the Pepsi's, P&G's, Hershey's of the world. And it's interesting, if I look at the valuation of those companies versus a Google today, and there's a pretty big disconnect. The Pepsi and P&G may trade closer to 18 times EBITDA, Google's at about 12 and a half times. I haven't had a Pepsi today, but I've used Google. I don't even know how many times. It is becoming more ingrained in our lives and is more of a staple, if you will, and has more staples kind of characteristics where you're starting to see the capital returns really accelerate here. I mean, Google announced a $70 billion share purchase yesterday. They bought back $14 billion for the stock in the first quarter. The share count's down pretty dramatically over the last couple of years. So they are starting to morph into the value space as it relates to... Google specifically and how I'm thinking about it on AI, Google's AI going forward, I think it's a watch and wait. I think it's still very early days. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of extrapolation of what could happen, how this could play out. But I think it's a wait and see. I think while well, yes, you know, Microsoft made a big splash with their investment in Chat GPT, you know, Google since its inception, they have been solely focused on hiring the best and brightest talent out there. And they have been investing in this space for a long time. And while they haven't made it front and center up until now, I would put their chances in terms of their ability to compete well in the space up with anyone.
0: How do you think about the threat specifically to Google search, right? Which is the golden goose. There was news out recently, you know, Samsung rather dramatically announced they were evaluating a potential change of the default search engine on their products to Microsoft's Bing. How real do you think that threat is? And I know we've talked a little bit about the big differences between, you know, the output of a chat GPT search and a Google search, but how do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I mean, first off, I think it's a good negotiating tactic from Samsung. And I think anyone in their position will probably do the same thing given the timing. But at the same time, you know, Google does pay... Samsung a lot in traffic acquisition costs, or we refer to as tech, to be the default provider and the operating system that is on Samsung phones as Android, which is owned by Google. I think it's something we're watching closely. I think the majority of consumers are used to just using Google. People say, I Googled this. Nobody really says I binged this or that. But this is really sort of the first threat to Google's dominance in mobile really ever. And so we can't take it lightly. It is still new, but we can't take it lightly. And I think the concern here is when you know, your market share is as high as Google's is and you essentially are the market, You know, just small changes on the margin, if consumers do start to switch, can actually eat into your growth fairly quickly. So you know, we're monitoring it closely. We'll see what comes out of it. Samsung and Google have certainly had a long relationship together. But yes, this Microsoft is certainly playing hardball. We'll see what happens.
1: Mike, it seems like we're in this state of AI euphoria right now. And More and more companies are carving out time on earnings calls and investor meetings to talk about and emphasize their efforts in AI. Just how fast do you see things starting to move from here?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, it is definitely seems to be the topic of the day this earnings season. I saw a headline just last night that between Microsoft and Google's conference calls on Tuesday night. The two of them mentioned AI, and they combined 142 times on their calls, which is pretty amazing. And you're actually starting to see other companies within technology and consumer areas, or what have you, adding in lines about AI in their press releases to maybe you know generate buzz or show the market that, hey, we're doing this too in terms of how fast things will move again it's very hard to tell it's so early days i mean i'm not sure it's the right comparison but it wasn't only just a couple years ago when we thought crypto adoption and real world usage was going to be widespread and we started to see similar mentions by companies you know in different spaces wanting to accept crypto or you know be involved somehow and that certainly didn't pan out as quickly as some people would have thought not saying it's the same but there are some similarities just given how early on we are but very hard to tell where this is going and how fast I'd love to hear from you guys, you know, in the value world, I'm not thinking about AI as much. Certainly in the last couple of weeks I'm thinking about it more, but I would love to hear about what you all are hearing and what do you think the chances are that regulation or any kind of other outside force is able to slow down this trajectory?
0: I did find it fascinating that Elon Musk and a handful of other tech luminaries wrote this open letter calling for a pause on AI developments for six months. Six months, I guess, was chosen because that would be enough time so that China couldn't catch up. But I think there's a lot of concern about the growing risks as we start approaching these kind of more powerful AI systems. So I don't know. I see two big issues. One is the kind of licensing and compensation issue, right? The chat GPT search result that you get doesn't have all of the sourcing and attribution that you might need. So you're kind of trolling the internet for all sorts of data that is being brought by people who have businesses surrounding, bringing that data to consumers and you're taking it, repackaging it. And so this licensing issue seems like one that will get more attention. But I think what's been more interesting to me is the real concerns that we're at some kind of a tipping point where AI systems will advance so rapidly that they approach or even exceed human intelligence you know we've put ai systems on the internet we've taught them how to write code we're training them on data from human social networks emotional interactions and i've probably listened to far too many podcasts about people worrying that it could just be a short time before an ai system could effectively you know outsmart and outprogram its developers and so i've definitely heard of a growing call for investing more in the controls of these systems as we've been investing and in powering them up. And right now we've been investing a lot more and getting them moving more quickly. And they're advancing, I think, at a speed that their creators did not expect. It does seem to me like this disaster scenario seems further away as it's both development in hardware and chips and increased computing power that still seems a ways off, but it's an area where I'm spending a lot of time thinking about it. I did note that the EU has been working on legislation since 2020 called the AI Act, which would It's still very much being drafted and being considered as to, you know, how do you get human oversight to ensure transparency and fairness and controls? I do feel like if history is any guide, though, regulations in tech are typically years, if not decades, behind the development. We see this with what happened with Microsoft decades ago, what's happening with Google now. I do find it a little hard to believe that regulators will be able to kind of keep up since ai development seems to be moving much faster than what we've seen in software development or search development but i don't know erica what are your thoughts
1: yeah i said i don't have much to add to your thoughts what's so fascinating is just the rapid pace that companies are adding dedicated resources to ai and ai tools But probably the first areas for regulation that will emerge are going to be in privacy and employment, exactly what you just mentioned. And there's a few states out there in the U.S. that are very focused on legislation around general data privacy. And, you know, the hope from those states is they'll have some sort of legislation go into effect over the next couple of years. But more regulation is probably coming, just given the fact that AI is moving at such a rapid pace right now.
0: So, Mike, maybe more broadly, it's obvious who some of the beneficiaries are. We've talked about them, right? There's NVIDIA designing the chips that are going to be used on the servers that power AI. Microsoft's clearly a big winner. They're an investor in OpenAI, and we're already seeing them as users of Microsoft integrating this into email, into Teams. There's a clear opportunity with all the data they have for companies like us to just improve our efficiency. There's other areas within semiconductors, but Who do you see as the biggest winners, but also some of the losers if we see the advancements in AI continue at this pace?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say at this point. I think in terms of the clear winners, we've already seen it in terms of what has moved in the market, you know, year to date. You mentioned Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta. I mean, companies with that kind of scale, that kind of computing power, and also just the CapEx and R&D budgets. I mean, the absolute dollars are so big, it's hard for the smaller companies to compete with that. And the compounding nature of that is they're certainly racing for the layer take all. You mentioned video on the chip side. I think sort of a second derivative is you'll see a need for increased memory from names like Micron, which we own in our portfolio memory, certainly in a down cycle right now, but from a longer term perspective, it's an interesting dynamic for Micron and Samsung going forward. As potential losers, it's harder for me to tell because it's not really my world. When I think about some of the current software businesses that are out there and some of the maybe more recent IPOs that have come out, I have to think there's a potential for those kind of business models to be either disrupted or displaced. I think ironically, some of the names that are safer from this is the older economy names, things that are a little bit more tangible, if you will. I think it's been maybe some of the names that have gotten more of the excitement, whether it's within biotech or software the last couple of years have gotten the big multiple, they're probably at the most risk.
0: It's interesting. There's a lot of industries where you're not as worried about AI eating their lunch if you can't even comprehend an AI application to move them out of place.
2: Yeah. You spend more time on AI than I have. I'm just curious how you all are thinking about the ethics piece and the sustainability dynamic when it comes to AI. I know it's a very tough topic to tackle. I'm just kind of curious what you're hearing and how you're thinking about it. Because I think the naturally people tend to skew what sort of harm this technology could do, but there's also a lot of positive that can come out of this as well. So I'll pass it to you. How are you all thinking about it?
1: Yeah. Mike, I'm happy to kick off. You know, on one hand, AI could be absolutely massive in finding solutions for many global and complex topics. But you know, on the other hand is what are the right parameters or guardrails that should be in place for a lot of this data? You know, some of the risks, which are very well known, but they include intrusive technologies, malfunctions, safety issues. These are legitimate ethical concerns. You know, how do you monitor quality or mitigate risk or protect intellectual property? But you know, there is a really big opportunity here. I mean, just think about being able to monitor weather patterns on a global scale to look at fast time data in not only predicting weather events, but looking at ways to have large-scale, efficient irrigation or agricultural processes. I mean, it's really endless what the opportunity could be. You know, an area within sustainability that we really don't have good or available data is looking at scope three emissions. And Scope 3 emissions are going to be a very large component for companies to be able to make informed business decisions about their overall footprint. So if AI could help to solve that issue and problem in the coming years, that would be an amazing opportunity, just the ability to analyze large data sets is an opportunity in many ways for corporate growth that people aren't necessarily thinking about when you think about AI initially. You know, there's just so much unstructured data out there and AI could finally move the needle on some of this sustainability reporting that has been a little bit unstructured in the past.
0: I might add that there's a potential here for a real consumer benefit. I mean, the efficiency gains that can be brought about by AI, we've heard about this in the coding space, you know, making coders two, three times as efficient when they're writing code, when they have a virtual assistant or someone to draft the code for them, debug the code for them. There's all sorts of other areas, whether we talked about drafting legal documents, drafting blog posts. There's so many ways that this could make people more efficient as workers and therefore reduce the costs, have a deflationary impact across a lot of different areas that could be a real benefit. So maybe let's turn to our third topic here and just how companies are returning to normal after the COVID pandemic. Mike, maybe you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing companies that are managing prices on both sides, raising their own prices and fighting the price hikes from their suppliers in this volatile inflationary environment?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly in the industrial world the materials world, it's been interesting couple of years i mean the inflation forces right out of covid were were strong really across the board everything from freight to labor to commodities et cetera. i mean a lot of companies were kind of seeing it from all angles and the way i think about inflation is sort of in two phases you think about your early cycle inflation your late cycle inflation and late cycle is sort of what we tend to prefer from an investing standpoint the early cycle is really that immediate spot market pricing moving due to market tightening think you know oil freight etc these Businesses that are tied to this or benefit from this tend to be more commodity businesses, price taker businesses, as I refer to them. And they're the first to benefit when inflation picks up. This puts pressure on what I refer to the late cycle bucket of companies. These are companies that have great intellectual property or brands, but just can't pass that price on those input cost prices immediately. They have to work with their suppliers and their customers to negotiate pricing pass-throughs. You know, this is the group that really gets squeezed on the front end as prices rise faster than they can raise their revenue. You know, but over time, these are the companies that are able to pass that pricing on to their customers, given the mission critical nature of the business or of the product or the brand name. Now, when inputs eventually decline, it's the price taker businesses that feel it, but it's the lead cycle names that tend to hold on to that price. And after those input costs start to roll over, that's when we start to see their margins rise. And that's kind of the market dynamic we're in right now. We tend to prefer companies that are in that later cycle bucket. We love businesses with really strong pricing power, even if they have to absorb a couple of quarters, maybe of margin headwinds to get that through, from a long-term perspective, we think there will be better off. And we're starting to see that in some of the reports we've seen this week. So portfolio company that we own is Waste Connections in the waste management business. This industry has incredible pricing power. It's contractual. They have CPI adjusters, and it's a non deferrable business. Your trash has to get picked up. That he reported this morning, pricing year over year was up 11% in the consumer staples segment, we own Unilever. It's been really interesting to see the reports out of the consumer staples group this past week. I mean, Unilever, P&G, Nestle, Kimberly-Clark, all putting up north of 10% pricing year over year and only seeing a very small fall off in volumes. The price elasticity has been way better than investors anticipated you know, going into this, but they are Still recouping some of those higher costs, not all that is flowing to gross margin, but again, I think as supply chains ease and some of these commodities are all over, I think that's a space that will be able to see gross margin expansion and hold on to those prices going forward. You now, I think on a go forward basis, I think parts of the industrial world are kind of underappreciated. We talked about those, you know, mission critical businesses. It does take some time working with some of their bigger customers to get pricing through, but those are businesses that tend not to give pricing back. You know, I mentioned Waste Connections, we on train technologies in the HVAC space, similar dynamic. They're really squeezed on steel prices in 20 and early 21. They got a lot of pricing through. They took some pricing earlier this year. And I think as we progress through this year, we're gonna to start to see margins revert back to normal and really strong for cash flow growth. I think about the potential losers on a return to normal, if you will. I think parts of the consumer discretionary area, retail, could be some areas where you could see some losers. I think a lot of businesses were selling goods at really full price during COVID due to the A to stimulus checks and B just sort of the lack of availability. And you know, as I think inventory start to normalize. And things start to level out. I think a lot of these companies that over earned for two years will start to see those margins revert back.
1: Mike, one topic that we haven't addressed today are geopolitical issues that continue to impact supply chains. What are companies that you follow saying about onshoring or the so called friend shoring?
2: Yeah, it's been certainly hearing more of that over really since the heart of COVID. I think people realized during the depths of COVID, maybe too many goods were coming from overseas and we've seen that pendulum swing back and you're still seeing the build out today. I think more and more companies want to have security of supply here. For certain parts. We've also seen we have some companies that actually in the manufacturing space decided to just manufacture the parts themselves. They dedicated some of their floor to build it themselves because of the lead times. And I think that is really a big part of what's been driving this strong industrial cycle, if you will. I mean, some of the earnings reports just out this week from everything from Caterpillar to Honeywell, Pentair, numbers have been pretty good. And it's like I said before, I think it's a combination of we had a bit of an industrial recession right before COVID. We have this demand for reshoring. And it's not just in traditional manufacturing, you're seeing huge demand and onshoring within pharmaceuticals. I mean, everything that sells into the build out of pharmaceutical capacity, train fits into that, the HVACs and temperature control systems are key. It's been a bit of a renaissance from a CapEx perspective here. And I think people have been expecting it to slow, but if this demand currently continues, and at the end of this year, we're going to start seeing real dollars from the government on the Inflation Reduction Act flow, the CHIP Act to come in as well, this might be a bit of a prolonged cycle, and it is certainly benefiting a lot of domestic companies here in the industrials and materials world.
1: Mike, as a value investor, your philosophy seems to be focused on looking at future cash flows of companies. How does sustainability play into that investment philosophy?
2: Sure. So at the end of the day, why we're excited about this strategy is for a couple of reasons. I think there's a lot of synergies in terms of how we think about value from a cash flow first perspective. We tend to gravitate towards more capital light businesses, businesses that aren't dependent on the capital markets, businesses that are self-funding, have high free cash flow conversion. That's naturally going to steer us away from I think a lot of parts of the value space that get more scrutiny from a sustainability perspective, whether that be ENPs, oil and gas producers, or regulated utilities. You know, but that being said, we're excited because I think there's a lot of emerging opportunities in those spaces that I think are overlooked by some investors out there. I mean, we do not take an exclusionary approach with this strategy. You know, we think today value is where the emerging opportunities are from a sustainability standpoint and we're really looking for solutions providers that are helping their customers achieve their long-term goals you know what we're looking for here is really good companies with strong free cash flow profiles that are leveraging sustainability to play offense and leveraging just to sustainability to help dampen the volatility and enhance the duration of that free cash flow over time or we refer to as a sustainable cash flow advantage one of the names we in the portfolio is actually in the energy space. You know, question we get is, how can you own anything within the energy space? And again, we don't approach this from an exclusionary standpoint. We're looking for those solutions providers, and we own a name in the portfolio, of Champion X, which is probably not a household name. It's a little bit on a smaller side, about a six billion dollar market cap. Champion is a business that was spun out of EcoLab, which is a name we know well here on the growth side. And that business was merged with a company called Apogee. I think about this sort of in two buckets from a sustainability standpoint. You know, the legacy businesses here are production chemicals technologies and production automation technologies. At the heart of it, both of these products help extend the life and maximize the efficiency of existing wells over time, which essentially lowers the need to drill new wells. We're just getting more oil and gas out of each existing well. The chemical side is really crucial in terms of separating the oil from other solids that come out and from the water that comes out of the well. I think it's maybe lost on people that, as wells mature over time, the water content only increases. And it's championed products that help treat, filter, and more importantly, recycle that water over time. And you see in areas within like the Permian or what have you, where you're trucking water in, having these products that help, keep water at the source are hugely critical from a sustainability standpoint. I think about their new businesses going forward, they have two really exciting you know opportunities. One is from a digital standpoint, they are really attaching digital capabilities on their production equipment to help monitor uptime and potential failure of their equipment. You've seen their digital business grow 40, 50% the last couple of years. This last quarter was just 40%. And then on a go for basis, they're the industry leader in methane emissions, which is still a small industry but again given what has come out in the IRA methane emissions is something that producers are going to be fined on on a go-for basis and having efficient monitoring regular monitoring that can be tied back to software you know this is becoming a mission critical need for their customers and again as you heard me refer to sustainable cash flow advantage of extending the duration lowering the volatility, Introducing a more contractual revenue stream into what is a more cyclical part of the market, we think is a really attractive free cash flow outcome for us. So, those new businesses are faster growing, higher margin, less cyclical cash flow. We think it'll help strengthen their customer relationships over time. And again, these are products that are helping their end customers solve their goals in terms of their emission footprint. So we think it's a real win-win from the customer standpoint, from the planet standpoint, and from champions business model standpoint. And those are the kind of dynamics and the kind of companies we are looking for here in this portfolio.
0: And trades less than 15 times earnings, Mike.
2: Mm -hmm. Here we go.
0: This has been a really great conversation. Thank you both for all your insights. Maybe we could close it off as we usually do by talking about what we're most excited about today. Mike, you've talked about a lot, but what has you most excited about the opportunity set today?
2: Obviously, I'm going to be a little bit biased here, but despite the tough start to the year from the value space, certainly very excited about what we're seeing within the value space, not just from a valuation perspective. You know, we're finding really attractive free cash flow yields on the equities in our portfolio, and also equally as excited in finding those emerging opportunities on the sustainability side, which I think are still undiscovered within the market, and leveraging and finding those companies that are driving better free cash flow outcomes for us, we think the setup here on a go for basis is really interesting.
0: Erica, what about you?
1: We're in a really unique situation where there's two possible disruptors to most, if not all industries and a lot of geographies over the next 5 to 10 years. So the first being energy transition or energy infrastructure and the second being AI. So we're spending a lot of time looking at ways to invest in both. And then today, you know, the risk reward in equity markets is not particularly good at this moment just given the probability of an economic downturn and you know valuations are probably not incorporating that economic downturn but you know from a valuation standpoint we'd rather play defense in a recessionary environment we're allocating the core fixed income over the past few months we've added to global equities and you know we've been maintaining our us small cap positions which tend to lean a little bit more growth in that asset class But the banking situation is one that we're watching closely, in particular, the impact to regional small banks. And then we are also maintaining our inflation diversifiers, such as infrastructure. Sid, what are you doing?
0: A lot of the same, I would say. You know, when thinking about what's exciting, though, I mean, I love this conversation with you today, Mike, because it's, again, a reminder that it's a market of individual stocks. And despite the kind of overall benchmarks having elevated valuation multiples, this is something I hear about from investors inside and outside of the firm consistently, is that there are still some great opportunities to be found. That being said, very top-down, more opportunities in fixed income. I've become more and more excited about the opportunities opportunities today and the opportunities to come in credit markets. I think we're already seeing credit cycles in certain areas of the economy, commercial real estate, some of the consumer companies that were COVID winners and are now kind of struggled as the economy has reopened. I think commitments in the distressed investing area will be really interesting in the coming years. And I think there's even an argument today that stressed performing credit is offering a competing or even better risk return than broad equities so you have the potential to increase your returns and actually maybe reduce risk by taking some equity exposure and put it into credit so you can build a portfolio of senior bonds and loans in the high yield area yielding over 10 percent, and that compares pretty favorably to long-term equity returns with potentially lower risk so i think The goal there would be to kind of take it slow as credit spreads are not yet as attractive as we'd like them to be, to be kind of full-sized and something like that. But I think it's another example of where we're being offered up something that's a bit different than we've seen in prior years. So that's got me a bit excited. I think with that, why don't we close out a great conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. And please everyone give a follow, give a listen to these podcasts going forward. And you can check out Mike and his quarterly commentaries for Large Cap Sustainable Value going forward if you like what you heard from him today.